1: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.comslash weight loss. That's plushcare.comslash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to Canadaland.com/slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca/canadaland to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca/canadaland. Today, we launched Thunder Bay, our serialized investigative podcast that we have been working on for the past year. And today on Canada Land, I am going to play you the first episode of that show. Thunder Bay is funded by our supporters, and this is crowdfunding month. Our goals this year are to improve compensation and to hire Jaron Kerr full-time. He is the talented young reporter who worked for four months on the investigation of the WE organization that we brought you last week. And we have a goal beyond that of hiring another investigative journalist dedicated to doing the kind of work here in Canada that Ronan Farrow and Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey and others have been doing in the United States, responsibly investigating claims of sexual misconduct. Canada has no one doing that job full-time. With your help, we will correct that and we will hire someone to do that. But for some of you, there's something preventing you from pulling the trigger and going to our Patreon site and just kicking us a few bucks a month. And there's no easy way to say it, so I might as well just spit it out. That hesitation, that block, it's me. Sure, I will listen to Jesse Brown, even though he annoys me, but I am not going to pay Jesse Brown to annoy me. I get that a lot. And you know what? I feel you. I acknowledge it. I am an irritating person. But luckily, I have found perhaps the one profession where that is a feature and not a bug. People, I irritate for you. But still, that Jesse Brown guy, he doesn't need my money. You know what? That is absolutely true. But I want to make something very clear. Guys, I'm already paid for. Other supporters in year one of our annual Patreon campaign covered my salary. The money that we are trying to raise now goes to my colleagues and the work that they do. Canada Land has become much bigger than me. The people who work here are incredible. They work exceptionally hard to find stories that they feel need to be heard, to report those stories, to produce podcasts that are the highest quality podcasts they can, and then they just publish this stuff. There is no paywall. They just want as many people as possible to read and listen and share this stuff and engage with it. They have earned your support this past year with more stories than I have time to mention. I could really go on and on counting off the incredible things they've done, but these are not my stories to brag about. So I've asked them to come on the show and talk about it. Here are some people whose names you'll hear in the end credits of our shows and some other people who you'll be familiar with, some of our staff telling you about the work that they've done that they feel is worth your support.
2: Hi, I'm Jaron Kerr. I'm a reporter here at Candleland, and I spent four months working on an investigation into WE, which was known as Free the Children. It's known for its Wee days. And... and this is probably the only place in the Canadian media landscape that would give me a chance to work on a story like this for four months. And I think that the only reason I was able to do that is because of Candleland supporters. So I am endlessly thankful for all the people that give Candleland money monthly.
3: I'm Kevin Sexton, the managing editor of podcasts at CanadaLand. Um, one thing that I'm really proud of this year is Wag the Dug. We actually tried to launch the show three times. The first pilot kind of worked, but it wasn't quite there. We did it again, it just kind of fell flat. And then Doug Ford slashed Toronto City Council in half, and we're like, okay, this is the moment. And from then on, the show has just felt really vital. I just want you to know that we needed your support to do this. Uh, This show could not have been done without having a little bit of time and a little bit of leeway and, and, you know, a little bit of resource just to do the thing right.
0: Hi, my name is Jen Gerson, and I'm the co-host of Oppo. I'm a big supporter of CanadaLand for a lot of reasons. Probably the biggest among them is that we need media out there that can show that there is a business model for success, and that business model relies largely on crowdfunding. Agree or disagree with Canada Land, agree or disagree with me, but if you think that having an outlet out there that is doing work that nobody else is doing is important, and if you want to see that model improve and get better, well, then there's really only one way to do that, and that's to put your money where your mouth is.
2: Hey, I'm Mann. I'm the host of Commons. I've only been here a short period of time, but we're right now working on a kind of mini-series on corruption in Canada. And the support from listeners really helps us out because it gives us more time and energy to kind of build a narrative structure around these things. Because these are really complicated issues and they don't often get told in an interesting way especially to folks who aren't reading the business pages. So I think it's a great opportunity to to be able to tell those stories in a compelling way and bring them to a whole new audience. Hi, I'm Jonathan Goldsby. I'm the news editor. And this year, what I've been really fascinated by and what I've tried to direct our coverage toward has been the gradual convergence between Canada's far-right media and Canada's mainstream-right media. Outlets like the Toronto Sun and... Rebel media and the things that sort of circle around each of them start to get just get closer and closer together, and we've documented that whether in looking at the reactions to the van attack in April or the shooting of the Danforth in July. One of the unique privileges, or at least extremely unusual privileges, of Canada Land is being able to run a website that does not have ads on it and that, that therefore is not dependent on clicks and that gives us a lot of room to explore subjects that you may not know that you care about yet but that will later become one of the definitive backgrounders or reference pieces or explanations of a peculiar phenomenon or story that we were on top of before anyone else was on top of and so we have that leeway thanks to people who support us.
1: My name is Hadia Rodriguez, and I was one of the co-hosts of Commons, along with Ryan McMahon. I think the story that had the most impact for me was the story on immigration detention. Before this, I didn't really know that immigrants and refugees were kept in jails and kept in detention centers for months, if not years. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about how immigration works and how the refugee system works, and I think this helped to dispel um, a lot of myths. More stories like this need to be told, so I'm proud to have been a part of being able to do that.
4: Hi, I'm David. I'm a producer here at Canada Land, and uh, one thing that I'd really like to highlight that we've been able to do with patron support is work on this Thunder Bay podcast. Because of everyone's
1: generosity, I was actually able to go be part of the team that was up in Thunder Bay, along with Ryan McMahon and Jesse. The most important part for me doing this was to actually have the resources to go up there and let people tell you what's happening in their own words. All right. Well, that is just a handful of the people who work here telling you about only a handful of the stories that we've done with your support this past year. We want to keep going. We want to do more and we want to pay people more to do it. Support the work of this growing team. Go to patreon.com slash Canada land, where you can get ad free versions of all of our podcasts for $5 or more per month and a ton of great rewards. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Canada land. If you are not getting the ad-free stream, there will be advertising throughout the crowdfunding month. We can't forgo our advertising revenue, so there will be a couple more messages, and then Thunder Bay. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Larry Gordon, Andrea, Pratik Gandhi, Mark Casas Cordero, Natasha Master, Max Hartsham, Matt Sheedy, and Rafael Dumas.
3: Hi, my name's Raphael. I'm a public servant living in Toronto. I've been listening to Canada Land since you had Gabriella Coleman on in 2015. And I like the diverse voices you have on all of your shows from across Canada. I would not hear otherwise.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterH.E.L.P.com/CanadaLand. Here is Thunder Bay. So, an introduction, I just want to let all the
0: students know that there will be music
3: lessons today. The
4: music room with Daryl First day of school at Dennis Franklin Cromarty High. Orientation assembly. A teacher takes the stage.
5: Okay, good morning everybody, nice
4: to see everyone, nice to see tons of familiar faces, lots of people that are back, the first thing that I want to mention is that here at DFC we have a technology policy, Uh, it's really important that you put your headphones in your pocket, okay? but it's still a sign of respect that your ears are open and that you're listening to the person up in front of you. you At first, it's a mixture of rules and motivational advice that'll be familiar to anyone who's ever sat through a high school assembly.
5: Students are treated with respect and dignity, and in return are expected to demonstrate respect for themselves, for others, and for property.
4: Then comes a warning you won't hear at other high schools.
5: But the thing that you need to
4: remember is that in the, what are we, 18 years? DFC's been open now, I think. There's been students that have left their homes, their Northern communities to come to school here and haven't
5: gone home. Their bodies have gone home in a casket.
4: My name is Ryan McMahon. I come from a small Anishinaabe community not far from this city and to us, Thunder Bay was the big city. Over the past two decades, in this city, nine indigenous teens were found dead. Usually their bodies were found in rivers and marshes. They were all from remote First Nation reserves. I'm going to say their names now. Jethro Anderson, Curran Strange, Paul Panichis, Robin Harper, Reggie Bushy, Kyle Morso, Jordan Wabass, Josiah Begg, and Tammy Kiosh. Five of them went to school here, at DFC. Their deaths hang over this school like a dark cloud. Everybody knows about them, including Megan. Today is her first day of high school.
3: Um, kind of scared. <laughs> um, nervous. Making friends. <laughs> um, keeping my grades up are some things I'm worried about.
4: New school, new kids, new teachers. But Megan is also living in a new home with new grown ups looking after her who she's never met before. And
3: I am from Grassy Narrows, but now I live here, so okay. I just moved here. Just a couple days, like,
4: yeah. Megan, like her classmates here at DFC, comes from very far away. The Ojibwe Reserve where she grew up has just 950 members and no high school. Same with 48 other remote rural communities scattered across Northern Ontario, some over a thousand kilometers away from here. Most of which you can't get to by car. Many kids flew in just a day or two ago on tiny prop planes. First time in a plane for most, first time away from home. Anyone is vulnerable at the age of 14. But these kids are especially at risk. Many of them have never even set foot in a city before. And their first city happens to be this city. Thunder Bay has repeatedly had the highest homicide and hate crime rates in the country. It might be the most dangerous city for indigenous kids in the world. They keep turning up dead, some by accident from alcohol and drugs, and some we just don't know. There's been evidence of foul play, of suspects who had motives to harm these kids, but nobody has ever been arrested or charged. A provincial inquest, one of the most expensive and wide-reaching ever held, opened up these cold cases, reinvestigated each one, and solved none. Police, reporters, private detectives, they've all come up empty. There are podcasts that try to solve murders. This isn't one of those podcasts the question I'm trying to answer is not who killed all those kids it's what killed those kids because something strange has been going on here I started noticing it a couple of years ago I have a personal connection to this town that goes back generations so when Thunder Bay makes the news I take note and this town just keeps making the national news According to Statistics Canada,
5: there are more murders committed here per capita than anywhere else in the country, making Thunder Bay the murder capital of Canada.
6: The city's mayor and his wife, Marissa, have been charged with one count each of extortion and obstruction of justice.
1: Court documents show the target of the alleged extortion was former lawyer Sandy Zaitsev.
5: Zaitsev did show remorse saying he's humiliated beyond belief and that his actions were grotesque to the extreme.
4: City Police Chief J.P. Levesque has been charged with breach of trust and obstructing justice. For years the city's cops have faced accusations of systemic racism.
6: The evidence is clear that an evidence-based proper investigation never took place.
1: So how big of a concern is human trafficking in Thunder Bay and in Northern Ontario?
6: I think it's a pretty uh, huge concern. In fact, almost a third of all Indigenous hate crimes in Canada are reported in Thunder Bay.
4: None of this is a secret, but it's disconnected. Why does it all keep happening here? What's with this place? What I want to find out is, what do all of these things have to do with each other? This is Thunder Bay.
5: need you to know there is an activity down by the river that involves throwing indigenous people into the river when they're too drunk to defend themselves. You tell me, doesn't that sound like bloodshed?
3: You never hear about convictions and there's always bodies in the river. So
6: it's like,
5: Nobody's pushing them in. They just go to the water. It's a natural progression. When people are sick, when moose are
2: sick, when animals are sick, they go to the water. One time I dealt with one of the Thunder Bay police officers and that fucker told me, I can't wait to tell your parents you're murdered. I can't wait to knock on their door and tell them you're dead. Like Who
3: says that to a 16 year old?
2: You know, mind you at the time, he was charging me for arm robbery because one of the Johns wanted his money back.
3: Missing people don't have a high priority. Native missing people, fuck, they're always running around. I'm surprised even their parents would call in that they're missing, because most of them don't. Another
4: missing female, who would have guessed it, native, uh, this is her name. Okay,
5: whatever.
3: When I got sexually assaulted here, the police, they asked me what I was wearing, they asked me if I was under the influence, and they asked me if I tried to, like, engage that person. And I just remember thinking, these are people that are supposed to protect me.
5: I hate to sound like a racist,
2: but it's the northern population. We just harbor them in and nobody is in control of their behavior. They don't know civilization.
3: I am,
5: I am Sandy. (laughs) Deceit! Shut up, Gerald. Alexander Zaitsev. Under me, just, I don't
6: have an answer. It seems to just breed hate. Thunder Bay is a fucking murder city. It's the safest city you'll find in Canada. Really. These last two years have been such a
5: clusterfuck.
6: What the hell is going on in Thunder Bay?
5: This place is a shit show down here.
4: across the city limits and the sign says welcome to the city of thunder bay superior by nature population 110,000 superior is a reference to lake superior the largest freshwater lake in the world which the town hugs the northwest corner of by nature is a reminder of the city's pride its proximity to rugged natural beauty on the horizon to the east across the water ...is a formation of huge volcanic rocks... ...called the Sleeping Giant... ...or as the Anishinaabe call him... ...Nanabujo... ...because when you look at it from the city... ...that's what it looks like... ...an enormous man in the water... ...flat on his back... ...the town itself is low... ...and flat and sprawling... ...the sky is... ...just enormous... ...it's relentlessly bright here... ...crystal clear... ...there's no relief from the sun... ...or in the winter... the ferocious cold winds coming off the lake it's hard to tell which side of the tracks is the wrong one because there are train tracks all over just as there are rivers winding haphazardly through the city it's a bad idea to use them as points of reference because they're so easy to mix up i've been coming here since i was a kid i ended up in thunder bay most winters for hockey tournaments high school sports and for family visits for my parents Thunder Bay was the city where they came to party. It's also the city they came to dry out. They remember the fun, but also the division, the tension. Like at 1.30 a.m. when the native bar closed and everybody would pile out across the street to the other bar, that's when the street fights would start. So yeah, I was attracted to this place. But the way my folks talked about it, it always carried a certain sense of menace. I still have family here. I still care about Thunder Bay. I was fixated on it as a kid, always looking forward to my next trip here, my next chance to eat pancakes at Perkins and shop for sneakers at the mall. And I'm fixated on it now. I keep coming back. Something about it remains unsolved for me, and I'm not the only one. John Thompson grew up in Thunder Bay. He left it, lived elsewhere, and then somehow it pulled him back in. His hometown is his fixation. He covers it as a reporter for TVO, the public broadcaster. He's my friend, and he understands this place better than most. Here's how he would explain it to somebody who's never heard of the place.
0: You're really in the middle of nowhere by global standards. The next city of comparable size would be Sault Ste. Marie, which is probably uh, six or seven hours travel to the east. Out west, uh, going to Winnipeg is uh, probably eight hours and then down to Minneapolis is probably about eight hours. To the north, you're looking at roads for probably about uh, 500 kilometers or so. And after that, uh, it's all flying. Uh, it's a lot of marsh and bog. And uh, there are a number of uh, First Nations uh, all the way to James Bay to the, to the north. Thunder Bay to them is, is the service hub. All First Nations that are remote but one, to my knowledge, uh, high schools not available.
4: The highway that takes you coast to coast in Canada runs right through it. Thunder Bay is literally unavoidable.
0: Your population traditionally might have been more transient. So, you know, obviously if you're having a transient population, it is more prone to vice.
4: People behave differently when they're just passing through than how they behave when they're at home. According to John, Thunder Bay was never supposed to be anyone's permanent home in the first place. It was a trading post for the fur trade, then a way station for lumber and mining, a place to take things from the land and then move
0: on. There wasn't an expectation that this was settled. The expectation was in most of these towns, we'll log what we can and then we'll shut it down. We'll mine what we have to and what until it's not profitable anymore. And then we'll get out. What happened was a lot of people settled down and stayed.
4: Specifically, Scandinavian people.
0: Finnish people settled here because this area, ecologically, is very similar to Finland. What there was to do here for work in terms of the bush was something that was very familiar to them. And following a loss in the Civil War, a lot of Finns fled the country and came here, developed a population here that is the largest Finnish population outside of Finland in the world.
4: For generations, life here revolved around the work of extraction.
0: Well, traditionally, you would have finished grade 10 and you would have got a job in the mill. When the forestry collapse happened in the 1990s, it forced the Ontario government in particular to have to step in and provide services and governance, not having wanted to do it. They didn't really know how to do it. And it was met with, and it continues to be met with, resistance.
4: The settlers who came to Thunder Bay were immigrants, but they stayed here against the odds built it up, fought for it to survive. Now they look at others who come here as the outsiders. Even people like me.
0: You have this question that we always refer to as Northern alienation, a sense of being alone to our devices. And when power comes to town, there's a sense that it's interfering. Ideas from elsewhere are dangerous. People from elsewhere are not welcome and so you will frequently hear counselors and the mayor condemn outside media who are coming here to kick up a storm and make a great story and burn the city to the ground they don't understand us they don't care about us they're not telling the good part of the story because they don't get us
4: john is walking the thinnest line on the one hand yes he is blasting the insular close-minded attitudes of people who don't want media here who don't want me, an outsider, to tell the story of Thunder Bay. But he's also warning me. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck me over for talking to you. Don't take a dump on this place and then just walk away.
0: Because inevitably, when this comes out, people are going to be upset about the story you're going to tell from here. So the question that they're always asking is, how do we save Thunder Bay? How do we make it better It's hard to hear year after year after year and get windburnt with how much trouble this city is in. However, that doesn't absolve you from the responsibility to do something about it.
4: I don't know if I have a responsibility to do something about Thunder Bay, to fix it. I don't know if it can be fixed, but I'm also not here to condemn it. I've been coming here all my life and I want to keep coming here. I called in a lot of favors to tell this story. I asked a lot of people to trust us and I don't want to burn them or this place. So I'm just going to try to tell it to you as best I can. And I can't tell it to you without telling you about Barbara Kendler.
5: There were tears, and there was anger. I can't believe
0: God, that. I love you so much.
5: It was standing room only today at the funeral service for Barbara Kentner.
0: She
3: got taken to us too early. We all know that.
5: Today they focused on remembering Barbara and seeing her off one last time.
4: Late on a Saturday night, in the middle of winter 2017, a 34-year-old mother named Barbara Kentner was walking to a relative's house with her sister Melissa in the east end of Thunder Bay on Mackenzie Street, just one street up from Simpson Street. A few days after the incident, Melissa gave an eyewitness account of all of it to the CBC. It
3: was about 1.14 in the morning. We were leaving my sister's house and we were heading to my son's house, just the next block over. This road is where there's a lot of hookers and everything that walk up and down those streets late at night.
4: You'll hear a lot about Simpson Street on an upcoming episode. It used to be Thunder Bay's red light district.
3: We were we were uh, walking along there. I seen the car when like, it looked like he was going to go straight. But then he turned onto Mackenzie Street towards us and the guy was hanging like halfway out the window like his whole half of his body was sitting outside the window. And then I heard him, he swore and says, oh, I got one of them. And then he starts laughing. And then I turn back and then I look and I see my sister bent over. She's like, miss, I got hit with something. She goes, look, see what it is.
4: It took a moment to figure out what had happened. The guy had hurled a rusted metal trailer hitch at them. And it hit her sister Barbara in the abdomen, rupturing her intestine.
3: And then I look on the ground and there's a trailer hitch. It's like, it's black, it's kind of rusty. The, the ball on it's rusty. There's it the hitch in the ball.
4: I put a new hitch on my SUV this summer. They're heavy. They're weighted to pull 3,500 pound boats and camper trailers. So to throw one out of a moving vehicle would take strength and purpose. It would mean cocking your arm back awkwardly, finding an angle in which to throw. You'd likely have to take off your seatbelt, shift in your seat, turn your body.
3: In that moment, she was still bent over in a lot of pain, and she wanted to drop right then and there, and she's like, I want to lay down, I want to lay down.
4: It would take six months for her to die. Braden Bushby was one of the four teenagers in that car. He was the one who allegedly threw the hitch. He was charged with aggravated assault, which got bumped up to second-degree murder when Barbara died.
3: Well, majority of the people that do walk down that street are Native. You know what I mean?
4: How did it not occur to him that this was a bad idea? When he felt the weight of the hitch, why didn't he reconsider? Why didn't his friends stop him? Maybe because in Thunder Bay, throwing things from moving cars at indigenous people is sort of normal. Just ask them.
6: It's actually not uncommon for something like that to happen. That's correct.
3: The ladies are are getting it uh, more targeted than
6: the guys. Sometimes when I'm sitting at the bus stop they'll just yell Indian or whatever. I just kind of ignore it.
1: Um, yes, it is like a regular thing.
6: When I walk the streets somebody throws stuff out like that. Eh? I see them throw stuff out to me and to some other people. Sometimes they yell. Uh, it happened to me a
3: couple times I was walking down the street. and People throwing beer bottles at me. I don't know what for, maybe because I'm Native or I don't know.
4: Ask non-Indigenous people about the attack on Barbara Kentner, and many are just as certain of the opposite.
3: I don't know if that's normal. I think a lot of our crime in the city
6: right now is all race on race. Not that I've seen, but I've heard that happens sometimes. But Thunder Bay is not the only place. You can go anywhere, lots of other places, Canada and the States, and you're going to find, I'm sure, the same thing. I think that's a one-off situation, a most unfortunate situation. And I think that situation just reflected a bad image on First Nation populations as as well as, as other populations in the city.
4: It might sound absurd to suggest... That getting a trailer hitch thrown at you by a stranger while walking to your nephew's house and then dying reflects badly on your community? But the fact is, it did. It was made to. The discussion of Barbara Kentner's attack and death focused on her alcoholism. Local news in Thunder Bay is pretty sparse these days. So a lot of people here get their information from a handful of Facebook pages and amateur news sites. The comment sections are filled with rumors and rage. A story spread online that Barbara was no angel herself, that she had viciously attacked a young white man years earlier. It was a lie, but no matter. After that came threats to Melissa Kentner's kids. She had to leave the city. It was Barbara's picture, not Braden Bushby's, that made the news. You Google him, and her face comes up. The only shot of him is with his hoodie pulled up and his head slung low, hiding himself during his perp walk. Barbara was savaged online. Someone dug up a video that had been secretly shot and uploaded to YouTube months before the attack. It's an eight-second clip titled Thunder Bay Zombies on Brody Street North, and it shows Barbara stumbling, her shirt off, arguing with her teenage daughter. Text on the clip reads, They just scrapped it out, ha ha. It was uploaded by a user called Thunder Bay Dirty. Thunder Bay Dirty was a popular website and Facebook page. Whoever was behind it would post clips of indigenous people stumbling around drunk, fighting or getting arrested, along with mocking comments. These videos have thousands of views. Most of it was supposed to be funny. Like this, where the anonymous uploader sings in his best drunk Indian voice.
5: If I was a snob, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd head down to the fucking liquor store and I'd pick up a case of blue. Yeah, joy to the rest. That's what all the whitey says.
4: But some clips are just straight up rage. Like this angry commentary about how filthy the city is.
5: Look at this shit. Look how fucking dirty that is. Look at the sidewalks. I can't even fucking rollerblade. That's how fucking pathetic it is. This city is shit. Look at it. How the hell am I supposed to rollerblade in this? Look at this. This is complete shit. Clean this shit up. Fuck.
4: Thunder Bay Dirty is one of many sites like this. There's the real concerned citizens of Thunder Bay, a Facebook group where locals, the self-described real citizens, Complain about panhandlers and convenience store robberies, and a host of other problems that routinely get blamed on the same root cause the natives. There are over 23,000 members of that Facebook group. There are only 110,000 people in Thunder Bay. Is there a difference between yelling racial slurs at people from your car and yelling at them on the internet? I suppose so, just like there's a difference between throwing fast food wrappers at a young mom from your moving car and throwing a trailer hitch at her. But it's all of a piece, and it happens here every day. Months after Barbara's death, there was another attack. A guy was taken to hospital, bleeding after he had eggs chucked at him from a moving vehicle. The front page headline of the local newspaper joked that, ''Egg toss incidents leave police scrambling.'' It's all a joke, to the press, to the cops. Racism is like this phantom that only half the city can see. Those who see it feel haunted by it everywhere. It colors every part of their lives. Everyone else thinks you're foolish or crazy just for believing that it exists.
6: The racism in Thunder Bay has many levels, though. You have to realize it's not just, you know, encountering someone who's going to outwardly, you know, say, you know, I don't want to serve you a coffee because you're Indigenous. There's lots of more subtle things here. This is May. Yeah, my name is May Katama, nurse practitioner at the Dennis Franklin Cromarty High School in Thunder Bay.
4: May sees the challenges in Thunder Bay very clearly.
6: I go into a store, I get followed. I'm brown, yes, but like I'm not going to steal, right? So you tell them that. You tell the the clerks well, you know, I'm just going to look around and sure enough, I mean, they're going to follow you in the store. You see it systemically with the interactions with the police. So there's that systemic racism and then there's the outward racism where people say really nasty things and throw things at, at Indigenous people as they're walking.
4: It's hard work making the phantom visible to people who don't want to see it. Julian Faulkner does that work. He's a human rights lawyer who goes after the police on behalf of Indigenous clients. He's been a constant thorn in the side of Thunder Bay's leadership. The police, the police board, even
5: the mayor. He doesn't hold much back. They represent, that is the Indigenous population, represents a threat to the Scandinavian way of life that Thunder Bay represented. This was their white nirvana. This is a community who is proud of who they are they are proud of who they are and that's the challenge in the south when there is an allegation of racism you spend forever swinging at shadows in an argument about whether it was racist or whether anything was intended and whether it was really attributable to something else in the north it's interesting i don't spend a tenth the time having to prove that it was a racist incident they will pretty well embrace that yeah, these indigenous people are a problem, and here's why. I have never seen anything like it. Thunder Bay is utterly immune to shame. They are immune to the facts being disclosed about them. It literally causes them to dig in, and they continue. And it's reminiscent of the Deep South.
4: On the next episode of Thunder Bay, the mayor, his wife, their accomplice, and their one-time friend, multimillionaire lawyer, and convicted sex offender, Sandy Zaitsev.
5: I have
2: absolute fucking proof that they tried to fraud me. They have a forged fucking will where, where, where they claim, they allege, I left my fortune of $50 million
4: To them. Thunder Bay is produced by Jesse Brown and hosted by me, Ryan McMahon. This episode was written by me and Jesse Brown. Additional research by Brigitte Noel. Reporting assistance by David Crosby and Jolene Banning. Music by Chris Dirksen. Mixing and sound design by Chandra Bullockon. Canada Land's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. A special thank you to the staff of Dennis Franklin Cromarty High School. Special thanks to the Canadian True Crime podcast for helping spread the word about this show. You should check out that podcast too. We are able to make this show only because of listeners like you. You can help us keep going by supporting us at patreon.com Canadaland Please do.
1: Episode 2 of Thunder Bay is online right now. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. I will skip the end credits today and simply mention that this episode, the Canada Land parts of it, were produced by Ali Graham. If you value our work, now is the time when we need your support. Go to patreon.com slash Canada Land.
4: A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice
3: will not be in this case. She's going to get away with it.
4: Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.